I am stubborn, and more than anything, I hate to admit when I am wrong. You can just ask my wife, Cassie. She can testify to this. Now, I will tell you, when I've really, really done something wrong, I'll be the first to admit and confess up that that I've done the wrong, but I'm also the person who digs my feet into the ground and takes my stand on the unmovable rock in some ways. And uh, shortly after we got married, I told Cassie, and she also found this out to be true, uh, that I had no hope, really, because both sides, my mom and my dad's side, got some pretty argumentative and defensive grandparents. So I'll uh, share with you a story about my stubbornness and my hating to admit my wrong that happened uh, just uh, just past this past week or two weeks ago, I guess. And it all was around this class that I'm taking up at NKU. Maybe a few months ago, you remember us talking about the perspectives course that's being offered up at NKU. It's a 16-week class that is supposed to give you a perspective uh, to see the world the way God sees it, to help you be more mission-minded and lost people-oriented. It's an incredible class. There's a small group of us from here at the church that are taking that class up at the college, and it's uh, Wednesday nights, three hours on Wednesday nights, and it's been great so far. We're two weeks into it. It's been incredible. But with this class has come, oh my goodness, so much work, a ton of reading, because every week we've got this assignment we have to turn in before class on Wednesday. There's reading you have to do, and then you have to answer some response questions. Uh, So actually, it's so much that the very first night of class, I was telling some other people in the class, I'm like, Either I had it extremely easy in college, or I have forgotten what it was like to be in college. And I was just in college two years ago, so I mean, I don't know what was going on here. But nevertheless, because of the studious and diligent pupil that I am, I began working on my homework on Sunday night. I spent two hours Sunday night and was still not even a third of the way done. I spent another two on Monday night and another two on Tuesday night to get it all done. I need to pause here for a moment and let you know that Tony Liberatory, our student minister, is also taking this perspectives class. So when I come in to work on Monday morning and then Tony makes his way in, I I say to Tony, hey, Tony, have you started on that homework? Knowing that the night before I just spent two hours working on it. And he said, nah, nah, I'll be fine. I'll do it on Tuesday night. And I'm like, no, you better get started. There's a lot to do. I'm still not even a third of the way done. Well, we get to Tuesday morning, and I'm like, Tony, did you do any work last night, Uh, homework last night? No, no, I'll do it all tonight. And I was like, okay, whatever, you're going to be up late because there's a ton to do. Anyways, we'll fast forward. Class comes and goes. Great, incredible class. Great evening. Thursday night, I already start working on this past Wednesday's homework, okay? Instead of two hours for three nights, one hour every night is what I was thinking. So uh, Saturday comes, Saturday morning, sitting down, doing some homework, working through everything, and then I'm wondering, okay, has my assignment from Wednesday night been graded? It has. Oh, yay. I cannot wait to open this thing up and wait to see the grader and all the wonderful comments he left. Tell me how smart of a person I am and how I got all these right and so thorough and thoughtful, And then I see the grade, an 87.5. Immediately, I was furious. I open up the assignment and start reading the questions I got wrong and then reading the guy's comments. And I'm like, I'm saying the same thing he is. Like, what's going on here? So I text Cassie and I'm like, I'm almost done with this class. It's one day, one week and I'm done because I got an 87.5. And she texts back this emoji right here. I then, after this happens, I then call her up and put her through making, listening to the questions, my responses, which by the way were pretty lengthy, and then his comments. And I'm like, what's wrong with this guy? So after the phone call, I then email the grader 
to share my concern with him, and he sees my perspective, okay, and ended up raising my grade to a 92.5, okay? Still not 100%, only a B plus, so it wasn't happy with it, but at least it's something. All of this resurfaced on Monday morning when I came into the office here at the church and asked Tony what he got on his assignment. <laughs> yeah, you already know where this is going. So I was thinking, oh, I can't wait to rub this into Tony. I got a high, you know, he raised my grade, all this kind of stuff. Needless to say, Tony got a higher grade than I did, even after the grader raised my grade. Now, I'm not trying to say anything about Tony here, but Yeah, I hate to admit when I'm wrong, but, uh, and hate to admit also when someone else may be right, and I definitely cannot stand when someone who procrastinated to the last minute got a higher grade than I did, but it's whatever, I'm not bitter. <laughs> this attitude, though, of not wanting to admit you're wrong and, and, and being stubborn in your ways, this hard heart that doesn't like to admit fault, that wants to be right above everyone else, is the attitude of the religious elite during Jesus' day. We've talked about these religious elite before. Uh, There are actually several different titles they wear, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and the teachers of the law. Those are the official titles they wear. Jesus often called these people out because of their stubbornness and evil practices. They're the ones who hold up a good front. They show themselves to be religious and, and righteous, but Jesus over and over reveals them as frauds. People who look good on the outside, but on the inside, their hearts are far from God. The religious leaders are on the scene once again in the story that we're going to look at today. Our story is told in the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but we're going to primarily look in Matthew's account. So if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open those up. Turn to Matthew chapter 12. If not, we'll have the scripture up on the screen. You can follow along in your Bible app as well. But we'll start in verse 22 of Matthew chapter 12. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. And the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. So an incredible scene has just taken place here. Jesus has performed yet another miracle. A man who is possessed by a demon, causing him to be both blind and unable to speak. And Jesus cast out the demon and in doing so, heals the man of his blindness and muteness. And this miracle of casting out the demon amazes the crowd. And it should. This was an incredible thing that's just taken place. It's why, as Matthew says in verse 23, all the people were astonished and said, could this be the Messiah? So already we see one of the two responses to Jesus. The first response is that of the crowd. When the crowd saw Jesus doing this incredible thing, their response was amazement and even a willingness to accept that Jesus was indeed the Messiah from the line of King David that was promised from the Old Testament. However, although the crowd was receptive and willing to this, the stubborn, hard-hearted, determined religious leaders would have nothing to do with it. I want you to notice the contrast here. Verse 23 says, The people said, were astonished, said, Could this be the son of David? But the Pharisees, when they heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. So the people were astonished and even began to entertain the idea that Jesus could possibly be the Messiah, but the religious leaders, they called him a fellow, just an ordinary everyday man. And the whole reason he was able to do this is because he was working by the power of the devil. So their response was one of disbelief and rejection. 
Now, this is kind of a nice juxtaposition that Matthew sets us up with here because Jesus has just healed a blind man, and it's obvious the Pharisees are blind to who Jesus is and what's going on here. They're not willing to accept in faith or even entertain the idea that Jesus could be the Messiah and the Savior of the world. Now, I want you to note here, they're not saying that, that there's not some supernatural thing happening here. So they're just not willing to say Jesus is acting on behalf of God. And so with no other logical way of explaining away just what just happened, what just happened in front of everyone seeing, they accuse Jesus of being in the same league as the devil. That there is a supernatural power at work here, but it's a demonic one. Now, you'll look in our text here, and they call him Beelzebul. Other renderings and retellings of this story have it as Beelzebub, with a B at the end instead of the L. And that name, Beelzebul, Beelzebub, it was a foreign god of the Canaanites that we see in the Old Testament. And the name Beelzebul means Baal, or God of the Prince. And that L was often changed by Jewish peoples to a B uh, to mock this false god. Because Beelzebub, ending with a B, means Lord of the Flies or Lord of the Dung Heap. It was another way of saying, your God's dead, he's powerless. Nevertheless, this accusation that Jesus was acting on behalf of Beelzebul it was accusing him of acting on behalf of Satan. Because when the Pharisees said this, all the Jews standing around understood Beelzebul to be the senior or the chief of the demons. Jesus hears their argument and sees it as complete absurdity. It doesn't even make logical sense. And so he responds in this way. In verse 25, Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But, it is, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Verse 29, or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Jesus' counter-argument is rock solid here. The religious leaders have just accused Jesus of acting on behalf of Satan in the demonic world, but Jesus claims, if I just drove out a demon, how can I be acting on behalf of Satan? Wouldn't Satan rather have the man still be demon-possessed? How can something working against itself actually be working for it? It's obvious any kingdom or house or city that has internal divisions will not stand. It will fall because it's fighting against itself. Furthermore, if the religious leaders are right and Jesus is acting on behalf of the dominion of darkness, then that just means that the kingdom is diminishing because there are people who are in that kingdom that are undermining the authority and power of Satan. And so the kingdom's diminishing. Jesus then points them back to examples of their own people. He says, your own people cast out demons. If I'm doing it by Beelzebul, who do you think your people are doing it by? So for Jesus, the only logical conclusion is, if I'm not doing this by the power of Satan, then that must mean there is a greater and more powerful person at work in the kingdom. Indeed, it's by the Spirit of God who opposes evil and seeks to eradicate all evil and the dominion of darkness. And if he is at work, and he is, then that means the kingdom of God has come upon you. But the only way for something like this to happen is someone more powerful than Satan has to come and perform this kind of miracle. Just like if you're going to try to steal from a strong man, a strong man's not just going to sit passively by while you carry off all of his possessions out of his home. No, first you have to tie up the strong man and then you can plunder his house. 
But if you're going to tie up the strong man, that means you have to be stronger than the strong man. So Jesus is making the claim that the kingdom he's working in and that the spirit that's in work of him, in him is of much greater power and strength than that of Satan in the kingdom of darkness. The spirit of God is at work and the kingdom of God has come upon these people. The hard-hearted and stiff-necked religious elite refused to acknowledge that Jesus was indeed acting on behalf of God and that God's kingdom had indeed come upon them. They were too caught up in being right about their own righteousness and self-worth that they were blinded to the fact that Jesus was bringing about God's kingdom. Jesus goes on to tell them this in verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus makes this audacious claim here. He says, if you're not with me, you're against me. You don't gather with me, you scatter. So with Jesus, there is no being in the middle. Either he is or he is not. Either he's worth it or he isn't. Either he's king or he's not. There's no middle ground. You can't be neutral or indifferent. Either you are with him or you're against him. But the next thing that Jesus says has become the source of a lot of anxiety and frustration, also the source of a ton of debate and study, just trying to figure out, what does Jesus mean here? This was actually for me, where I spent most of my time trying to figure out what is going on. So let's look at what I'm talking about and referring to. Verse 31, and so I tell you, Jesus speaking here, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. The reason this is so troubling and has caused so much anxiety and it's difficult to understand is because Jesus has just acknowledged here that there is some sin out there that when committed, it will not be forgiven. And this causes a lot of anxiety for people because they wondered, have I committed that sin? Or am I committing that sin? But I want you to notice how Jesus starts. Jesus starts off and says this in verse 31, And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. And I think he intentionally starts here. What I want us to recognize and remember, what God wants for you, what God wants for us is to save us and to forgive us. So whatever this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit may or may not be, we have to recognize it's more than just a formulation of some words or a thought or or a deed done in ignorance. The context of this statement is the story that we just read, the story that just happened. It's more than just saying something or or doing something. You you can't just read something into this. You've got to think about the context of what's happening in the story. The context is a rejection by the Pharisees of what Jesus is bringing about. Jesus has just healed a demon-possessed, blind, mute man, And the Pharisees, in the hardness of their hearts and stubbornness and wickedness, accused this mighty act of being done for the kingdom of Satan. Jesus says, no, that would be a house divided against itself. And since it's not by the power of Satan, then it's by the power of God. And that means God's kingdom has come upon you. So what the Pharisees have done in the context of the story is more than just accusing Jesus of working in the league of the devil. They have outright rejected the kingdom of God and the power that is at work in the kingdom of God namely the Holy Spirit. And that's the context of this statement. It's about a rejection of the power that is at work in God's kingdom, namely the Holy Spirit, not about a word or a thought or small deed that we've done. 
Blasphemy, by the way, is to have an attitude of disrespect directed against the character of God. Blasphemy is a sin that can be forgiven, Mark 3.28. The unforgivable sin that Jesus speaks of here is a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Although this is much debated, most evangelical scholars agree that the sin and blasphemy that Jesus describes here is a rejection of the power of the Spirit that is at work in the kingdom of God. Now, I want to read for you just a few of the writers that I read this week and how they defined blasphemy of the Spirit. And as you're listening to their definition of it, what I also want you to catch on is the heart of the person they describe. So listen to this first one here. Jerry Henry, this is a state of hardness in which one consciously and willfully resists God's saving power and grace. It is a desperate condition that is beyond the situation of forgiveness because one is not able to recognize and repent of sin. Thus, one wanting to repent of blasphemy against the Spirit cannot have committed the sin. That's kind of interesting. Larry Chowdhury, it is not the mere formulation of words or thoughts or deeds done in ignorance, but rather a hardened form of opposition that attributes the work of God's Spirit to Satan and, therefore, and thereby rejects the salvific offer in Jesus. R.C. Foster, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is a deliberate, vicious, conscious attack upon Christ and the Holy Spirit. Since the chief work of the Holy Spirit is to glorify God, an attack upon God is an attack upon the Holy Spirit. An attack upon Christ is an attack upon the Holy Spirit. Mere passive failure to accept Christ is to be distinguished from railing against or assailing the Holy Spirit. And finally, Henry Alford, it is not a particular species of sins which is here condemned, like, oh, have I done that one thing? But a defiant act showing a state of sin, and that state a willful, determined opposition to the present power of the Holy Spirit, and that is shown by its fruit, blasphemy. So do you notice the disposition of the heart of the person described? Hardness. Hardened. Willful. Deliberate. Vicious, defiant, determined opposition. And that's the heart of the person who commits this sin. The heart of the person who commits the unforgivable sin is a hardened heart. And that is why the context of this statement from Jesus is the story of the hardened, deliberate, vicious, defiant, determined opposition of the hearts of the Pharisees. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not just a mere passive rejection of Christ. It's a stubborn and hardened heart toward the power at work in the kingdom of God, namely the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Pharisees were more than just accusing Jesus of working on behalf of Satan. They were outright rejecting the spirit that was at work in him and therefore denying the fact that God's kingdom had come upon them. Now, Whether the Pharisees had actually committed this sin or not, we don't really know. It seems as if Jesus is just warning them that they're getting mighty close and are in danger of committing this sin, and thus he sounds this warning. But the reason I think Jesus sounds the warning is because he knows their hearts, and they're the kinds of hearts that commit this unforgivable sin, the hardened, willful, deliberate, vicious, defiant, evil, and stubborn heart. It's why Jesus goes on to say this in verse 33. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of, and a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. 
But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they've spoken. For by your words you'll be acquitted, and by your words you'll be condemned. Jesus recognized you cannot hide the kind of person you are. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Your actions and your words will show others what kind of heart you have. If you have an evil and stubborn and hard heart, that's how you'll talk, how you'll act, and how you'll live. But if you have a gentle, humble, and contrite heart, your actions and your words will show him. After Jesus teaches this, and just after having healed the blind, mute, demon-possessed man, it's still not enough for the religious leaders. Their hearts are still hardened, still calloused. There must be something else Jesus could do to prove himself. This act of healing a blind, mute, demon-possessed man was not enough. And so the story goes on to say in verse 38, then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. These stubborn, hard-hearted people, they can never have enough. They had already witnessed numerous, countless convincing signs validating Jesus' message and claims, but they still refused to believe. See, either they thought Jesus had done what he had done and healing this man was easily, could easily be duplicated by someone else or maybe he was working by a factor other than God. So they wanted an irrefutable sign and wonder, something that would meet their expectations, something that would bring awe and amazement, something like when, when God parted the Red Sea and the people crossed on dry land or, or something like when God sent manna from heaven and the people had food to eat in the wilderness. Maybe then, maybe just then, when Jesus does this incredible awestruck sign and wonder these hard-hearted people would believe. But Jesus knows disbelief always finds a way because of a hardened heart. And since Jesus is not just about performing signs and wonders to create and bring awe and amazement. He's not a circus show, friends. He says this in verse 39. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus says, I'm done with giving you signs because you won't be convinced. Your hard and stubborn hearts will not believe even if I performed another sign. So the only sign you're going to get is an irrefutable sign. It will be the ultimate miracle that will prove that I am who I say that I am. It will be the chief miracle that undoubtedly proclaims the message that I am the Son of God and that I have come to inaugurate and establish the reign and rule of God's kingdom. And that sign will be none other than the prophet Jonah. And when Jesus says this, what he intends his crowd standing around him to do, and also for those of us who are reading in, is to lunge back into that short book in the Old Testament, Jonah. Just four chapters long. Now, I know many of us may be familiar with that because of a fairy tale-ized version we are told in Sunday school, but the people standing around Jesus, they were very familiar with this book and even understood the theme running underneath of it. In this short book, it tells the story of how God calls Jonah, one of his prophets, to go to the city of Nineveh to prophesy to them and tell them of their wickedness and how they should turn to God. 
Jonah, for a host of reasons, tries to flee from God and heads literally in the opposite direction of Nineveh and sets sail for Tarshish. And while setting sail, a great storm with winds come upon the sea. All the while, Jonah is below deck asleep. The sailors, on the other hand, are above deck and they're crying out in fear, begging one of their gods to save them. And then through casting lots, they find out that all of this is because of Jonah. And so they ask Jonah, what should we do? And Jonah says, throw me overboard. Now, this at first may sound like Jonah's concern for the sailors and he really wants the storm to be calm. But likely what's going on here in Jonah's mind is this is his last ditch effort to get out of having to go to the Ninevites. Because then if he's thrown overboard, he dies. He doesn't have to go. And so that's what the men do. They throw him overboard and they cry out to God, do not let this man's blood be on our hands. And you know how the story goes from here. Tim Mackey puts it this way. I love it. The Lord provides this strange watery tomb for him, the stomach of a large fish. And this is where the sign of Jonah lies, the one that Jesus was pointing us to. Because under most circumstances, when you're swallowed by a big fish, this would mean certain and sudden death. But this submarine death becomes his passage back to life. While in the large fish for three days and three nights, Jonah prays. He thanks God, never really repenting, by the way, but he thanks God that God has always been with him and he promises that he will be obedient and listen this time. And so instead of death, God had the fish vomit Jonah back onto the dry land. And this is the sign. Jesus would also go down in a tomb, a literal tomb, which means death. But in a great and powerful and mighty act, he would come back out of that grave of his and proclaim the day of the Lord. And this is the chief sign and miracle. The resurrection of Jesus is the miracle on which the whole ministry of Jesus hangs. If Jesus has not risen from the dead, then there is no need to believe in him. But if he has risen from the dead, then this means incredible truths for the entire world. This one miracle, above every other miracle that Jesus ever did, was the crux on which the whole life and ministry of Jesus stood. It's why later Jesus' followers said this, 1 Corinthians 15, 14, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. The chapter says, and you're still in your sins. See, every miracle of Jesus proves and shows us uh, great and powerful things. For example, when Jesus heals someone or raises someone from the dead, it shows us that he has power over life and death. When he calms a storm, it shows us that he has power over creation itself. When he casts out a demon, it shows us that his kingdom is about destroying the kingdom of darkness. When he heals the blind, the lame, the mute, the leopard, it shows us that the kingdom he's inaugurating is one where all the rights and wrongs of this world, all the wrongs of this world will be made right. Every sign and miracle of Jesus confirm and reveal truths about who he is and why he came. But the resurrection... The fact that after three days he came back to life after dying the substitutionary death on the cross is the ultimate and supreme miracle and claim. The resurrection served as the divine confirmation for the person and work of Christ. Jesus staked his entire claim on this one key miracle, a third day resurrection. The resurrection confirmed Jesus' claims regarding his divine identity. The resurrection confirmed Jesus' claims that his death would accomplish atonement for the entire world. So if Jesus did not raise from the dead, nothing he said or did would matter. But if he did raise from the dead, 
then everything has changed. And who he is and what he's done has eternal significance. And this is the miracle Jesus told the crowds they would get. And it's the only miracle they would need. And if they didn't believe this miracle, they wouldn't believe any miracle. Because this kind of miracle cannot be fabricated. It cannot come from some demonic force. This kind of miracle, the resurrection, can only happen by the power of God. And so in the story that we've looked at today, the religious leaders refused to believe that Jesus was acting on behalf of God when he cast out the demon and healed the man who was blind and mute. But the miracle of the resurrection would be the miracle that definitively proved who Jesus was. And that would be all they would need. And then from there, they could choose whether or not they would believe in him. But Jesus knows and understands disbelief always finds a way because of a hardened heart. But also, a humble heart is one who's open to have faith. And that's why Jesus says to the religious leaders in verse 41, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. He says the same thing about the queen of the south, Sheba, who had come to hear about King Solomon and all his wisdom and then hear, her, him, hear him tell her that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. See, the reason that both Sheba and the men of Nineveh will rise up and stand at the judgment of this generation of religious leaders is because they heard the message of God and they repented. They didn't harden their hearts and become callous and stiff-necked and stubborn. They humbled themselves. So when Jonah, through the providential acts of God, finally makes his way to Nineveh and preaches to them, it's a short message. Matter of fact, in the Hebrew, it's only five words. And some people believe this was deliberately intended by Jonah to do this in order to give the people the bare bones, the bare minimum. That way, hopefully they wouldn't repent. But it doesn't work. Even after only hearing five words, the entire city of Nineveh, from the king all the way down to their cows, repent. We're told this in the book of Jonah, chapter 3, verse 5. The Ninevites believed God, a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warnings reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued this proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. The king of Nineveh, the king of one of the most powerful, murderous empires of the world at the time, And the people of Nineveh, the evil, adulterous, pagan peoples, they hear the word of God and repent. You can hear in those words that I just read from the king, a pleading with God, a humble heart. This is why they put on sackcloth and sat down in the dust. It was a way to show their humility and unworthiness before God. It was an act of humility. It was a way of saying, we're not worthy before you, O most holy and high God. Have mercy and compassion on us. And this is the point Jesus is making to the religious elite. The reason those wicked, adulterous, murderous, foreign pagans of Nineveh will stand in judgment of these supposed righteous and religious leader of Jesus' day is because they heard the word of God. And when they saw what God was about to do, how he was about to bring destruction, they repented. Even though they were wicked and vile and pagan adulterers, they humbled themselves. They softened their hearts. They turned from their evil ways 
and turn toward God. But the wicked and adulterous generation of Jesus' day, even though they get way more than a five-word sermon, they get the Son of God come down preaching good news, proclaiming the kingdom, performing signs and wonders, they still don't believe. Their hearts are too hard. They're calloused and stiff-necked, and so they refuse to repent. And this is the message for us today. Faith in Jesus starts with the humble and repented heart towards God. Faith in Jesus starts with a humble and repented heart towards God. Jesus says, if you're not with me, you're against me. If you do not gather with me, you scatter. See, the supposed righteous and religious leaders of Jesus' day, they were not for him. They were for themselves, for their own, quote-unquote, righteousness, their own prestige and recognition. They wouldn't believe in it. Jesus did perform another sign and wonder because their hearts were too hard. They were a stubborn people. They refused to be wrong, and they refused to acknowledge that there is one who is greater than they are. No amount of good religious deeds can ever come before a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. It's why the psalmist writes this in Psalm 51. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasures in burnt offering. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God, you will not despise. And if we come to God with this kind of heart, he will, just like with the Ninevites, see it and not bring on us destruction, but rather save us. That's how the story of the Ninevites ends. Jonah 3.10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. And here's the great news for you and I today, the gospel message. That sign that Jesus said would be given was given. Jesus did spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And because of his substitutionary death on the cross, and because of these words right here, Christ indeed has been raised, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, we all can have an everlasting life in the presence of God to enjoy him and glorify him forever. But this life, although already accomplished for us, we are saved by grace, it is through faith. We have to receive it in faith. The faith of a person with the humble and repented heart. Let's pray. God, we come before you like the Ninevites, humbled, recognizing we are not worthy because you are glorious and radiant. You are the most high God. Your name is above every other name. You are glorious and mighty, God. And so we come before you humbled because we are far from that. We don't even really deserve to be in your presence. But because you sent your one and only son, Jesus, who, as the word says, humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, we can approach you as unworthy servants. God, I pray that we would soften our hearts and not become calloused. That we would continue to have, as the psalmist writes, a broken spirit, broken and contrite heart. And that this is how we would approach others and this is how we would approach you. Because you're worthy and we don't deserve what you've given us, but yet you gave it anyways. So we come to you giving thanks for who you are and praying that you would work in and through us to be a humble people. And all this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.